Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Jakob Vanderslice from Vanvest Partners. Welcome, Jakob. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Sure. Likewise. A uh, little bit about Jakob. Jakob is the co-founder of Vanvest Partners and has been investing in real estate full-time since 2005. Prior to his real estate career, Jakob was a professional firefighter and arson investigator. Outside of work, he enjoys flying airplanes, skiing, golf, hiking, and spending time with his wife and young sons. So with that, Jacob, you want to add anything to your background? No, that's uh, that, that about covers it. We, um, we've been investing full-time in real estate for quite a while. We've done a lot of asset classes, single-family, retail, town home development. And uh, we got in the self-storage business in 2015 and uh, scaled it up from there. And, and over time, that became our, our primary investment strategy. Awesome, awesome. So you're a professional firefighter. So I was, a long time ago. Yeah. So, so what, what makes you to shift towards you know, real estate side? I've always been fascinated by real estate and I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I started doing some deals uh, in my spare time and and got busy doing those and uh, and quit my job and I've been unemployed ever since, uh, going on like 15 years now, I guess. So would cool. have it no other way. It's been a fun ride. Okay, okay, cool. Awesome. So why, why self-storage? I mean, you did like other stuff also into real estate. So what makes you selecting self-storage? Well, we had looked at the asset class for a while and uh, we liked its historic downside protection when there's an economic softening or a dislocation event. Um, we like the durable income streams it produces. Uh, we like the ability to scale. Um, and it's uh, it's weathered storms historically pretty well. And we're obviously coming into a storm right now and we're, we're hopeful and we're confident it's going to weather this storm pretty nicely. Um, and another reason too, is we, we, we really like cash flow. And for a long time in our careers, we were mainly focused on creating transactional income, meaning we were buying, uh, making better and selling too often and too quickly. And we shifted that thesis some years ago. And, um, now we are going to monetize deals at some point when the time's appropriate, but our primary objective in the, uh, in the, in the foreseeable future is, is cash flow. And, we believe that wealth creation real estate is building an asset base that's sustainable, that's res- that's financed responsibly, and holding on to and operating that asset base for a fair amount of time versus just trading out of it right away. Awesome, awesome. So, what are your goals for your you know, self storage portfolio? Our goals for our self storage portfolio in general? Yes. Well, we have we have a couple of different lines of business. So we're um, within self storage. We're on our third self-storage fund and uh, fund three is designed to only buy existing storage facilities that are undermanaged. Um, for whatever reason, the sellers don't have the capital they need to make capital improvements. They don't um, they don't have an efficient revenue management platform in place. So we buy these deals that are undermanaged and we add value uh, first with capital improvements, making them prettier and shinier. Um, but mainly we add value through our operational platform, just growing top line revenue, controlling expense loads, uh, growing physical occupancy. Um, so yeah, fund three is only buying existing storage facilities and outside of fund three, uh, we also have a self-storage development platform and we are capitalizing our development deals and single asset syndications 
we have a number of deals in the pipeline here in the Denver metro area. Uh, we closed on one about a month ago that's now under construction. Um, and those deals have an incrementally higher return profile than our deals in fund three. But the reason the return profile is higher is the implied risk, right? There's always inherently more risk in developing than buying an existing facility. So the IRRs we're targeting there, 18 to 20%, um, about a 225 multiple to investors. And fund three IRR targets are 14 to 16% and a similar multiple, but over a longer hold period. Um, so the, the, the return targets are kind of risk adjusted um, based on the strategy. But you know, independent, you know, IRR is an important metric, and we all have to we have to speak to IRR and quantify it. But IRR is an elusive metric at the same time. And what we really care about most is cash flow. We we like our cash flow. And the path to that cash flow, yes, about our goals earlier, our goal is cash flow. The path to that cash flow, though, can vary from deal to deal, development deal, right? You're gonna be a couple of years before you have cash flow. It takes a while to build it, it takes a while to lease it up. Uh, an acquisition, though, you have immediate cash flow. But uh, again, that recurring, repeatable revenue stream is uh, is always our goal. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. So, how exactly you will find this value of deals or you know uh, ground up development deals? What is your process? How are we how are we sourcing acquisitions in both? Um, yeah, they're they're generally, you know, this phrase gets thrown around quite a bit, but. Um, the deals we're sourcing for the most part are truly off market. Um, they're, the market doesn't see them. They're sourced through broker relationships. They're sourced through direct to seller relationships. Um, we do a fair amount of direct to seller marketing, uh, basically mail pieces that say, hey, we're not a broker. We wanna buy your deal. I think we're, we might be able to pay you a price that you think is pretty attractive. Um, we've gotten a fair amount of deals that way. And then just uh, getting to know brokers and, and being open and honest and actually performing. Um, you know, give us a chance on this deal and uh, we're going to close. We're going to make it easy for you. And, um, you know, if you like working with us, give us your next round of deals that come across your plate. And and that's been that's been very successful the last couple of years. Got it. Got it. So what's your thoughts on, you know, location when it comes to self-storage university? Location wise, um, well, specifically for self-storage. One of the things we're analyzing first are the rents in the submarket. So where are the rents as it relates to the rents on the deal that we're buying? And how different are those rents? So obviously, we want to target deals in a, in a market that maybe has an average uh, rent per square foot per month of a dollar. We want to buy a deal that's uh, averaging seventy-five or eighty cents. You know, customers below market. Um, so beyond rents, we also look at supply ratios. Uh, Self storage is very uh, local supply sensitive. So nationally, there's about eight square feet per capita of storage. And historically, if you get into submarkets that are well over that number. Um, you might have said that they're, they're oversupplied. And while under that number, you might say they're undersupplied. Um, but we buy deals uh, here in North Carolina. We were talking before we started recording. Uh, we've got deals out in North Carolina, too. North Carolina's got pretty high supply ratios. Um, you know, Hickory and Shelby, for example, are like 12 square feet per capita. But all the deals are full. Um, everything's full, including our facilities. Not completely full, but like in the low 90s. So typically, markets with lower rents can support higher supply ratios because more people can afford. So while we're looking at supply ratios, we're not saying we're only going to do deals in markets under eight square feet per capita. Um, we're, we're thinking about that, but we're also kind of quantifying what the rents are and the different nuances and how much supply a market can support. So really it's what are the rents and what are the supply ratios? 
Um, beyond that, uh, the fundamentals really, uh, as far as the criteria we look for in an acquisition, um, they kind of tra transcend all real estate asset classes. We want markets that are high growth markets. We want good good wages, good income. Um, we want uh, population density. We want households. We want rooftops. Uh, we want, we don't want markets where people are moving out in droves, um, like an oppressive tax state or whatever the case might be. So uh, well-located, good markets with a story for growth, supply ratios and rents are all the data points we look at when we uh, make an acquisition decision. Got it. Yeah, thank you. How do you determine whether that particular you know, self-storage unit is a good fit for your criteria you know, for investing? How do we determine if it's a good fit for our, our criteria? Yeah. Well, um, it really, I mean, there's some subjectivity and objectivity in, in deals that we underwrite and the assumptions that we layer into our models. Um, and it really varies from deal to deal. Um, some deals, for example, will buy uh, at very low physical occupancy because they're brand new and they just opened. So we closed on a deal in Florida, for example, a couple months ago, and we bought it at 40% physical occupancy in July, and they opened it for leasing in February. So our game plan on that deal is, of course, physical occupancy growth and then revenue management after we're physically occupied. We buy other deals that are highly physically occupied. Uh, we bought a deal in Tucson, Arizona in April um, that was in the low 90s physical occupancy, but um, their rents were substantially below market. So the year one business plan on that deal is very different than the Florida one. And the main difference is we're bringing below market customers up to market rents. So we're focused more on revenue management and just kind of tweaking our small revenue streams uh, unit by unit that add up to be meaningful versus purely just physical occupancy growth. Um, so criteria wise, we want to we want deals that we can um, target a mid teens IRR to investors. And we also want to write what we believe is a very conservative and reasonable exit cap rate assumption. Um, you know, if you if you have a deal that's not working in the model, all you do is lower the exit cap rate and the IRR goes up, right? Well, you gotta believe that exit cap rate. And I guarantee you cap rates are not going down. They're only going to go up for the foreseeable future. They just can't go down any further, especially with interest rates. So um, layering in as much conservatism as possible and having reasonable and achievable assumptions, I think is really important when we underwrite deals. But um, yeah, there's not really necessarily a black and white set of criteria that we use to buy stuff beyond supply ratios and rents. It's mainly, can we deliver a reasonable IRR to our, our investors and our partners? Um, with reasonable and achievable assumptions in our models. Got it. From demographics point of what kind of demographics you would look? Uh, demographics vary. I mean, there, there's some theories that um, if you have a average incomes of 50 grand or 60 grand, whatever the number might be, people can only afford to pay 2% of their income to store. And then once you get over that 2% number, you start to see a decline in rates. We've seen support for that in some markets and other markets we don't. So we quantify incomes, we care about them, but the, the main thing we care about is, is household density. We want rooftops in the submarket. We're not, we're not buying stuff out there in the middle of farmland uh, in overly rural locations. We just, we, we want density and, and we look at supply and competition. Um, but demographics wise, we'll buy some deals with really low average incomes uh, in some markets rather with really low average incomes and we'll buy deals in some markets with really high incomes as well. Got it. So what, what is the minimum density you would look? We we try to target um, population centers that are fairly nearby of 50,000 people. Sometimes we go less than that. 
Um, we're generally not buying in core infill primary markets. We're, we're definitely finding success in the secondary and tertiary markets. Now, this is different from our development pipeline. Our development pipeline, we're buying in just core infill locations, tough to replicate, tough to get entitled. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of examples, Pensacola, Florida, um, Brunswick, Georgia, uh, Shelby, Hickory, Walkertown, Salisbury, North Carolina. We've got a deal we're buying in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Um, and we've, we found that these incrementally smaller markets uh, are what we believe a really good blend of current cash flow, but with capital appreciation at the same time. If you're going to buy uh, a, an existing storage facility, say in Seattle, um, your IRR might be pretty good. And it might still be a pretty good deal, but your cash flow along the way is going to be very, very low, especially in this environment. So we try to find acquisitions with a with an attractive blend of dividend yield during the hold period, uh, but also with that uh, that gain on sale and that pop when it comes time to monetize. Got it, got it. So, so what's your take on current, you know, inter high interest rates and lending market? How exactly that is impacting, you know, your investing? Well, um, we were sitting in our, um, we have a deal we're buying in Tulsa next month, and we had our investment committee meeting for the deal. And we paid about an $8,000 fee a few days ago to lock our interest rate at 5.8%. And it's a seven-year fixed, 24 months interest only, and a 25-year AM. And my comment um, initially was, oh, 5.8%, that's not too bad. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, can you guys imagine if a year ago I was sitting in the same conference room and I told you a year from now, we're going to lock an interest rate at 5.8%. And I'm going to say that's not too bad. And everyone just kind of sat there for a moment and reflected. And it's amazing how fast this is this has changed. Um, the interest rate environment is obviously going to get worse. They're going to go up further. And you cannot have interest rates where they're at or even where they're gonna be and still have cap rates that remain compressed. The math just doesn't work. I think a big reason why cap rates have remained compressed for a while in spite of the rising rate environment is because there is so much investor demand for certain asset classes. There are more buyers than there are deals and that's keeping values up and, and cap rates down. Um, but I think uh, as these deals matriculate through the system, sellers are gonna start to realize that their pricing theory from Q1 uh, or last year, whenever it might be, is no longer what the deal is worth today. And uh, I'm not sure how obvious this is going to be or when it's going to happen, but we are we are definitely going to uh, see a decline in asset valuations and asset pricing as interest rates continue to rise. So, you know, we, we like cheaper debt, obviously. We'd rather finance it at three and a half than a 5.8. Um, but that higher cost of capital is reflected in the pricing we're paying for our acquisitions. So that's baked in. Uh, if interest rates go up to 7%, um, that's the price we're going to pay is going to be reflected um, with that higher cost of capital. So I, I think we're going to see a decline in values and they're 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 coming they're coming pretty soon. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So your group, like not only value our deals, you are also focusing on you know ground up developments. So what what are some challenges with you know going with ground up development compared to value our deals? Well, um, as we as we touched on briefly, ground up development is of course inherently riskier. You've got you've got really two big risks. Um, you've got hard cost risks, right? You've got a budget. And you can build a deal for 10 million and it costs you 11 million. 
Um, and then you've got revenue risk. So you're, you're underwriting um, future revenue streams that have never existed on that site. And you're making an, a, an informed decision on that based on data, based on submarket rents, and you know, you're being conservative. Well, that's really the big risk in development or, or future revenue and, um, and hard costs. But um, one of the reasons we're attracted to development right now, we've done a fair amount of development, but we haven't done a lot of development in the last few years because the market hasn't made sense to. Um, now it does. And the reason it makes sense now, uh, there's really two reasons. One is um, the entitlement process is more difficult than it's ever been. Uh, a lot of municipalities are pulling back on their zoning codes, making it more difficult to get self-storage development projects approved. Um, and the second reason is hard costs are way up. So it costs a lot more to build these things uh, now, of course, than it, than it cost two and a half years ago. Um, with that being said, what those two issues create are very high barriers to entry. So if you're able to get a project <clears throat> entitled and built, um, it's going to be very difficult, more difficult than it's ever been for another operator to come in and replicate that deal somewhere nearby for, for the reasons I just described. So you create a class A product and you create a sense of scarcity by building that product, meaning it's tough for somebody else to do it, especially since you just built yours, right? You've added more supply to the market. I think that scarcity and that class A product type is gonna command a premium when it comes time to monetize. So those are a couple of reasons we like development, uh, notwithstanding all the risks I just described. Acquisitions, buying existing facilities and obviously is inherently less risky if we're buying a deal in the low 90s uh, like the one i described a few minutes ago physical occupancy um, we've got historic revenue streams going back years so we know the revenue that we're buying and our intention of course is to increase that and make it more efficient um, but it's not like you're going to have a material change in revenue based on how the deals performed uh, the last two years in the wrong direction right so you kind of you're buying an income stream that is a little more quantifiable and established. And um, buying that income stream uh, inherently is less risky and uh, will take an incrementally lower return um, that, that reflects that lower risk. Yeah, absolutely, great points. Yeah, compared to no value add versus a uh, new construction. So would you share any of your best self-story investing experience so far? Well, I, I I forget I forget the best ones really quickly, and I remember the worst ones. So I'll start with the worst ones. Um, we we bought a deal. Thankfully, we don't have any partners in this or investors, I should say. It's just me and my my two business partners. We bought a deal in Iowa um, a couple of years ago. Small deal, tired, old, busted. Um, we bought it as part of a ten thirty one exchange, and we had the proverbial ten thirty one gun to our head: either pay a big tax bill or buy a deal you probably otherwise wouldn't buy. Um, and we bought it and it's just underperformed the entire time we've owned it, which is fine. It's we look at it as like a 1031 escrow account to a degree and we'll blow out of it at some point when it's appropriate and exchange into something else. Um, but yeah, uh, 1031s are a, a tricky thing because they'll, they'll they, they create um, unnatural motivation for people to buy deals that maybe they otherwise wouldn't buy if they were not in a 1031. So that's kind of one of the worst ones we've done. Um, you know, some of the best ones, we we just sold our, our portfolio. It's the first round of deals we ever did in storage. We, we started either building or buying them in late 2015 through 2016. And we just sold that to Extra Space at the, at the end of May. So that was, a, that was a pretty good home run. It was good timing. It was kind of before interest rates really started spiking up. So that traded for a very low cap rate. Um, we have a deal we're taking to market in Wisconsin that's going to be a, a really strong one. We've owned for about three years. 
but yeah, the, the good ones you forget about and, uh, and the bad deals you, you remember, you know, thinking about them every day. Yeah. That's how yeah. you will learn new things. Right. So. Yeah, no, we've, everything we've learned has been by, um, frankly, making mistakes. Uh, we haven't learned much from our successes, but we've learned a lot from our failures. Yeah. And what's our current focus? Well, I touched on this a moment ago, but we're going to see a decline in asset values. Now we're going to see some pain. And um, even though self-storage is historically resistant to recession, some might say it's recession enhanced. Um, we've seen a lot of deals acquired in the last year um, using assumptions that we think are untenable. Really fast revenue growth, a short-term refinance that returns capital, and then a short-term exit at a very low cap rate valuation in a market that probably wouldn't command that cap rate today, let alone in a rising rate environment. So I think we'll see some pain in the storage space. Um, a lot of people who got floating rates on deals, um, you know, they, they went into it with a 3% interest rate on a floater. They stress tested it at four and now their interest rates at five. They're having a debt service coverage ratio issue. They're having a cash flow issue. So I think we'll see some discounts and some motivated sellers sometime in the next few quarters. Um, every time I make a prediction, I'm wrong, of course, but uh, I think it just just the math suggests it has to happen. And we'll see what the Fed does, right? We're recording this on um, interest rate hike day. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if they do what, they, what everybody thinks they're going to do or if it comes in higher. We'll see what their sentiment is. Um, but the American consumer is stressed right now. Uh, they, they, they can't afford their gas. They can't afford their rent. Um, so I think we're going to see an increase in unemployment and uh, continued declines in the equity markets and uh, some devaluations in the real estate space, too. So it's going to be a dynamic environment for the foreseeable future. But uh, we see a lot of opportunity in that, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And any personal habits that helping you to be successful? Uh, well, my my disciplined personal habits have gone by the wayside the last couple of years with two toddlers and uh, and a full time real estate investing job. Um, but I, I do try to uh, generally get all the stuff out of the way I don't want to do during the day in the morning. You know, your hardest tasks you don't want to deal with and just get it knocked out. And the rest of the days feels like a lot a lot easier. I also do uh, a lot of calendar blocking. Um, I kind of live and die for better or for worse by my calendar. And just allocate time for critical thinking and complicated tasks. Um, I work out as much as I can, uh, not not as much as I need to, but uh, there's always room for improvement there. And then uh, when I can, golf, ski, hike, I fly airplanes for fun. But you know, work habits in general is just time allocation and and just memorializing everything on your calendar. And if you block time to work on something, you keep that time blocked, and you do that, and you go on to your next call. Cool. So any one decision that you took have major impact on your life? Um, and this kind of ties in with, you know, if I were going to give advice to somebody, but I think the one decision I made that set me down this path is just simply doing my first deal, taking that risk. Um, you're not going to create wealth on the sidelines. And no matter how good or bad the market is, there's always a deal out there that's going to create some opportunity and some upside. Um, so yeah, I think buying my first, uh, investment property in my early twenties in Denver, I think in 2005, put me on the path, uh, for better, for worse, where we're at now, um, done a lot of deals since then, and we'll continue to do deals. But I think for those of us listening who are thinking about taking a risk and waiting for that perfect opportunity to come up, that perfect opportunity will never arrive. There's never a perfect deal. There's always going to be a risk element. 
there's always going to be a downside risk, but um, you know, the best thing you can do is go out and take a risk, do your first deal and do everything you can to mitigate that downside, right? Stress the deal and find out not so much how much money can I make on this, but what has to happen for me to lose? And if those events that have to happen for you to lose are really tough to believe or quantify um, and kind of nuclear events to a degree, that's a deal you might consider going on and doing. Cool. So on any books that impacted your life? You know, I'm, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I'm, uh, I don't, I don't read a lot of business books. I just can't get through them very well. I've read all the core ones, but um, I mostly stick to historic nonfiction. And uh, I'm in the midst of reading a book right now called Spearhead by uh, Adam Makos. It's uh, it's about a World War II tank crew um, in Western Germany. And um, the, the author does a really good job of kind of giving the German and the American perspective. And um, it's just a, it's a can't put it down book. I'm not done with it yet. Um, one of our investors recommended it to me. And apparently the ending is uh, very unexpected. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. But uh, I mainly like historic nonfiction books about... Uh, uh, leadership, conflict, adversity. Um, cool. Those are what I like. Cool. Yeah. And how can listeners can connect with you? Well, I always love to meet somebody and talk shop about real estate. Folks can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. Awesome. And thank you very much, Jacob. Thank you for sharing, you know, your experience and self-storage side, both value-add and also, you know, uh, ground-up development side. Yeah, Rama, great, great to meet you. Thanks for having us on today. Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next time. Thank you.